the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is The Rob Black Show. Welcome in to EP Wells Informed Investor Market Update. I'm Rob Black, sitting in with Adam Phillips, CFA and CFP Director of Portfolio Strategy for EP Wealth. We're about 100 days out from Christmas. I know, I always count these things. The summer rally has fizzled oh so much, and um, all eyeballs seem to be on do we test lows from June on the stock market. A lot has happened in the previous week. Let's hit some of it. Um, Adam, the markets pulled back in large part. There was a big number on CPI, the Consumer Price Index on Tuesday this week. What did you see? What do we need to know? Well, I saw what I think just about everyone else saw is that the markets didn't like it. Uh, We we saw the S&P 500 fall over 4% on the day. So that was the worst, the biggest daily decline since June of 2020. And probably for good reason, you know, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, okay, is this an overreaction? But I I think if we just back up a little bit to what we saw towards the end of last week, you know, maybe the market got a little bit ahead of itself in expecting this number to come out and and be a really um, strong or or favorable number. Uh, And they got a dose of reality uh, and then some. And so what this number actually showed is that, yes, inflation did continue uh, its downward trend. It's uh, down to 8.3% year over year, still well above that 2% target. But if you look underneath the hood, as as we really like to do, and focus on the details, uh, it wasn't that pretty. Uh, You know, one of the things that that I noticed was that, um, yes, gasoline prices fell 10%, or actually a little bit more than 10% on a month-over-month basis. That's great, but all the other data uh, really left a lot to be desired. So, um, what I noticed, noticed that was that uh, the core prices, so excluding food and energy, on a year-over-year basis, they're at about uh, up at about six point three percent, so pretty high. But what's notable is that just that the the rolling three-month average is up six point five percent on an annualized basis, which tells you that we're actually trending higher. The breadth of these gains, even though we're seeing some progress on gasoline and energy, the breadth of, of this, this price growth is really, I think, what's scary and tells us this is going to linger along uh, a, a lot longer than, than most of us anticipated. And so what you saw was that reaction as people looked at this number and said, OK, the Fed really can't um, that that 50 basis point hike next week is out the window. There's no way they can get away with that. 75 basis points is all but guaranteed. And there were actually some who came out and said that the Fed can justify a 100 basis point move at their meeting next week. Uh, I I think that that's probably a stretch, but we see the the markets even this morning are pricing in about 25% odds of a 100 basis point or 1% uh, upward move in, in policy rates. So it tells you that this is really, it got the market's attention I don't know if the Fed is really too disappointed at that because this this whole time there have been members of the Fed who have been saying, you know, the, the market doesn't quite get it. Uh, and, and it seems to that there's a little bit of a dis- disconnect between the reality and what we're looking at on the policy front and what markets are expecting. And so I think some at the Fed, like Neil Kashkari, are probably looking at the sell-off and saying, okay, good. 
investors probably got the message now. Um, but uh, but I think that's really what we saw uh, on, on Tuesday and in, in the market's response to it. And you say, and I'm not putting words back in your mouth, but I'm going to paraphrase here. You say the Fed says the market doesn't get it. And yet the market has a history of saying the Fed goes too far and they don't give the, the markets time to digest those big 75 basis points, 75 basis points, 75 basis point hikes. It takes about nine months to bleed in. I think Wall Street's also saying because the Fed may not get it, the odds of a hard landing or a tougher recession are increasing as there's a disconnect between what the Fed wants us to believe and what we think the Fed is capable of. Is that fair to say? I think that is fair to say. And that's really one of the fears is that these the longer you have these aggressive uh, rate hikes, uh, and 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 the, I think the higher uh, the, the odds of a policy mistake and maybe going a step too far. And it's really we've been saying this whole time. The Fed is trying to thread this needle. They are trying to get job openings to fall from that 11 million uh, plus level uh, nationwide. But at the same time, they don't want to necessarily see a huge uh, spike in the unemployment rate. So how do you how do you manage that? How do you thread that needle uh, without going a step too far and and causing economic harm? And and so, I think yeah, the the, the response was also saying that okay, with uh, seventy five basis points likely uh, and uh, an additional um, aggressive rate hikes uh, after this uh, next next week's meeting. Uh, that just increases the odds of, of a hard economic landing. And I think that's what uh, what we're starting to see uh, play out in, in the risk markets here. Um, of note, you know, the other thing I noticed was the November 2nd meeting, which is the next policy meeting after next week's, the market as of today is actually pricing in another 75 basis point rate hike then. Uh, which is really interesting, and and you know what what I look at is not just what they are the Fed is expected to do in these upcoming meetings, but where they're actually going. What what is that destination look like? And obviously they're working towards a, a moving target. You you mentioned how there's this lag between when you see the rate hikes and when you see the the impact on the economy. But I think it is interesting to see that the, the expectations of this so-called terminal rate, meaning what is the policy rate when the Fed is ultimately done uh, with their heightening cycle or with their tightening cycle, um, we're seeing that most expect the Fed to finish up at about four and a half percent. And we're currently at two and a half percent. So that tells you there's about 200 basis points of additional tightening the market is expecting, which means that we're only about halfway through. Uh, and and uh, the market is you know expecting the Fed to uh, to get pretty aggressive here and trying to rein in inflation because it doesn't seem to be going down on its own just yet. Well said, and that gives me great perspective. Now I do a podcast and a radio show. I talk to more consumers. You're more of the professional portfolio manager. You're a CFP and a CFA. One of the things that I do on a daily basis, I scour news and I try to find optimistic nuggets here and there. Two that I've seen recently is that with mortgage prices higher, real estate seems to be cooling pretty aggressively. Um, people aren't bidding crazy amounts on top of crazy amounts, as well as you're seeing some markets like Idaho come down and in inventory build, but also even rents have started to cool off again on a one month basis. One month does not make a trend, but am I too soon to look for these green shoots and maybe think, you know, six to nine months from now? the water levels of inflation will have receded to more acceptable levels? Um, or is it month to month and I should just calm my jets? 
I don't think there's anything wrong with with looking for um, some some sources of optimism, right, and, and sources of hope here. Um, you know, I, I think as you noted, one month does not make a trend, and and so what I look at on on the, the rental side of things is that, yeah, we we know the 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 um the residential side of things uh is is struggling right now we know home affordability is extremely challenged right now because not only are property prices still elevated they grew about 40 percent over a two-year period we know that now borrowing rates have spiked this morning uh, as of this morning i saw the national average uh, on a 30-year mortgage uh surpassed six percent for the first time i think since 2008 and so what this means is that it's going to be increasingly difficult for uh, potential home buyers. And so it means that many of them might delay their plans and actually go in and rent something out. And that additional demand on the rental market could actually support uh, growth in rental prices. And so I think that's one thing that we need to kind of keep an eye on. Um, but, uh, you know, it's something to watch here in, in, in the months to come. I am hopeful that uh, inflation does make its way down towards more normal levels. But just to give you some some perspective here, if we saw uh, on a month over month basis CPI, so broad inflation, remain about flat, uh, so grow at essentially zero percent over the next seven months, that would uh, mean that around April or so of next year, our year over year inflation rate would be down to about three percent or just below it. So that tells you what we're up against. We've seen so far two, uh, essentially two back-to-back months of flat month-over-month CPI growth uh, or inflation. Um, but is it too much to ask or hope for to, to see seven more in addition to that? And, and so I, I think, uh, you know, that's something for us to just kind of keep an eye on. But I think uh, overall, the trend will continue to move in the right direction. It just uh, might take some time. So what's next? Is it, we've gone through earnings season. Do we need more earnings adjustments to come down? Do we need people fired or do we need people hired? Um, what's the Fed looking for? What is Adam Phillips at EP Wealth looking for? Well, I'm looking, I'm looking at a lot. Um, but one of the things that I, I am, am really looking at is um, not just from the economic side and, and what's going on with the labor data and you know the, the weekly jobless claims, uh, I think, is a really good and timely indicator. It actually tells us that the jobs market is still really strong. I think the monthly and uh, the monthly data we get confirms that. But on the weekly data that we're getting, you know, 213 week uh, initial jobless claims were filed. That was released this morning. Um, that's the lowest since May. So it tells you that people aren't running to, to claim their unemployment benefits. They're actually doing okay from, from the job standpoint. So we're not seeing layoffs just yet. Um, but uh, but what I'm looking at uh, from the market standpoint are these earnings revisions, and I think they still need to come down a little bit. And we're starting to see a little bit of that where the S&P 500, we've seen downward earnings revisions actually outpace upward earnings revisions for about 13 consecutive weeks now. And so I think that trend is, is uh, it, it's underway, but I think we need to see a little bit more of it. Um, to get more comfortable with with current equity valuations and, and before we start to see them as an attractive entry point. And I think the Fed is really looking at the labor market data. Obviously, they're looking at inflation as well, but um, they are, uh, as, as I said, hopeful um, that they will start to see financial conditions start to tighten. And, and some some signs of that could be uh, shown in the in the labor market where they're starting to see some loosening up um, and, and where the job market might be getting a, a little bit uh, tougher. And that might put a ceiling or a cap on wage inflation, which is really what they're worried about. 
of note, I want to circle back to the mortgage rate and just remind people a 6% mortgage rate isn't ludicrous. My first mortgage that I got was about 10 and a half, 11%. 3% a year ago was ludicrously low. My father, long past, would be rolling in his grave like, get that 10 times over, you can get that. Um, so I, I think we're resetting where we need to reset. It just needs time to digest and feel comfortable with it. Wall Street will figure it out, I think, in the long run. Is there anything else that you want to tip in as we wrap up this segment, Adam? No, I, I think that's a great point, uh, Rob. So thanks for mentioning that. And no, I, you know, n- next week uh, w- will be a big week. I think that's what everyone's focused on. Um, you know, they, the FOMC, uh, so the Federal Open Market Committee, will meet on Tuesday, uh, and their meeting will uh, end oh, yeah. on Wednesday. And so on Wednesday, we'll we'll hear uh, whether it's a 25, 50, 7,500 basis point rate hike, it's almost certain to be a 75 basis point. They've, they've pretty much uh, tried to telegraph that um, through um, their, their speeches over the last few days and, and through sources at, say, the Wall Street Journal. So um, I think they've done a good job at setting expectations there. But I think beyond that, we're always looking at what Jay Powell uh, talks about in, in his uh, press conference that follows the conclusion of that uh, policy meeting as well as we'll be getting some updated uh, economic projections from the Fed. So this comes out quarterly. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see uh, where their, um, what their outlook is and, and where they think inflation is heading over the next um, you know, several quarters and, and what that means for policy rates. So I think a lot of this really just uh, gives us a perspective about how the Fed itself is viewing it outside of their policy actions. What is their outlook? So um, I think it'll be really interesting. So plenty of, for us to talk about uh, next time around. Sounds good. As always, thank you. I want to remind people it's always a good time to reach out to your financial planning team at EP Wealth and get an update, share information, talk about what's working for you, what's not working for you. Information is the key to successful financial planning. I'm Rob Black for the Informed Investor Market Outlook with EP Wealth. He's Adam Phillips, CFA, CFP, Director of Portfolio Strategy. Um, great insights. Thanks for your information. Thank you. Invest in what is really important. Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. Are you concerned with financial planning, tax planning, managing your investments, or just planning your retirement? Rob Black has partnered with EP Wealth Advisors. With over $12 billion in assets under management and more than 80 financial professionals at the helm, EP has your financial future in mind. Learn more by visiting robblackshow.com. That's robblackshow.com. Joining now, CFP Chad Burton to talk about bear markets, bull markets, retiring in good times, retiring in bad times, and much, much more. Chad is a CFP. He is also a regional director with EP Wealth. He's my former business co-founder at New Focus Financial. In 2021, we flipped the script and sold to a bigger company and large part merged because they had a lot of cool offerings. We'll talk about that and much, much more as we uh, focus on getting you into retirement and through retirement in good times and bad times. Chad, I'm taking a quick look at a chart right now, and I'm seeing 2008, 2000, then 1992, late 80s. I'm seeing some bear markets in there, but generally speaking, I'm seeing up markets. We happen to be in 2022. And like I like to say, it is a good time to talk about the worst time to retire. Um, first and foremost, good to be with you again. How are you doing, Chad? Doing well, doing well. But yeah, I mean, I think you we we do have to acknowledge we're right in the thick of um, 
one of the scariest times to have started retirement, to be going into retirement. Um, these types of, you know, the stock market declines are normal, right? The, if we look at the past, even 50 years, we've got over 70% of the time, slightly over 70% of the time, the markets, the stock market is positive. If we're looking at the S&P 500, um, a little less than 30% of the time, it's negative over the last 50 years and average returns of over 11%. And when the market's negative, the average loss is around negative 13%. So, you know, the market's doing what it what it's always done, right? You go through these periods of growth and then some contraction, you go through a recession. But what's been toughest on retirees that go into retirement with here's some cash and then here's my balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds. Rob, this is the worst, you know, this we're living through the worst bond market in, you know, since the 1960s. Um, that's what concerns retirees. So we have to acknowledge that this is a very scary time. So let's talk about the relationship between bond market and retirees. Um, mm -hmm. How important, again, as a younger man, and I still see myself as younger, even though realistically I have all gray hair now. Um, as a younger man, I, I really skewed away from bonds, but as I'm getting older, it's going to be a part of my portfolio for better or for worse as a way of getting income to replace my W-2 income that I had in working years. Mm -hmm. What do I need to know about the bond market in these terrible times? Well, um, first of all, I think you know when interest rates were historically low, you go into 2007 when the rate on the U.S. 10-year treasury bond, where you're basically loaning money to the government for 10 years and you know you're going to get your money back, it was over 4.5%. And fast forward into the Great Recession, where there was a lot of stimulus into the economy and the Federal Reserve lower, not only lowering the overnight lending rate between banks, but literally going out and buying bonds, even through covid to stabilize the bond market, bring the bond prices up and the interest rates low, we start 2022 with the 10-year treasury under 2%. And so now we're, you know, as you as you approach that 4% number on the 10-year treasury, that's when you start to get that that competition between stocks and bonds again. And to kind of go back, you know, over 28 years ago when I got into this business, it was you know, here's about 15 to 20 percent in cash, and then the rest in cash instruments, like things like CDs that used to earn four or five percent. And then the rest of the portfolio might be 40 percent stocks, 60 percent bonds. Well, as interest rates declined and went to rates that weren't even keeping up with inflation, the average investor went more into equities, you know, 60 to 70 percent equities and the rest in fixed income. And so the, the balanced portfolio has changed over time to be more aggressive because interest rates were so low on bonds. And that'll start to flip as you get to see as, as interest rates float up. Now, I don't think they're going to float up as high as they were prior to like, you know, 2004 or five, but, you know, it's been the most, I guess, anticipated projected rise in rates that we've ever seen. And when interest rates go up, it's an inverse relationship. As rates go up, the bonds that you own and the bond funds that you own go down in value, which isn't a big deal unless people panic and sell and turn those paper losses into real losses. Because the way a bond works, even though on paper, it looks like it's at a loss, as long as you hold it to maturity, you get your money back in, mo in most cases, unless there's a credit issue. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. So you start, said at the start of 2022, I almost want to change the timeline to halfway through 2021. I got a mortgage for two and a half percent. 
Flash forward to halfway through 2022, mortgages are at 6%. That's the craziest jump in mortgage rates I've ever seen in my life. And it's kind of got that same relationship with bonds, I believe. Is that correct? Absolutely. I think that you know mortgages are going to be more closely tied. I think we have to, first of all, step back and remember, what is the Fed doing? They're, they're dealing with the overnight lending rate between banks. Okay. And so that's going to affect the more of the short-term loans. And, and they're in, as they increase interest rates, the short end of the curve or shorter-term bonds go up in rate. And when you're going into a slowdown, people aren't willing to invest long-term money in long-term bonds. So all of a sudden, you get short-term bonds paying more than long-term bonds. It's an inverted yield curve, which is typically, you know, we're either in a, a slowdown of the economy or it's it's coming. Um, so it's, it's kind of one of those things where you've, you got to step back and, and take a fresh look at the portfolio. What am I going to do now in the light of rising rates, a little higher inflation than what we're used to over the last couple of decades? Cause Rob, you and I've been doing this for a long time and right. we've just, I mean, we saw two decades of inflation that was much lower than what the previous 50 or 60 years was. Mm-hmm. So the mortgage that I got in 2021 means I overpaid for my real estate, but it's interesting because I feel pretty good that I have that mortgage for the next 29 and a half years, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so even when there's these changes, it, it's worthy of note. You can lock in, like I locked in last year, mortgage rate. Should I lock in bond rates this year? Because I've always said on the radio, if interest rates are above three and a half percent, you buy bonds. If interest rates are below three and a half percent on the 10 year, you buy stocks. Way too simple of a formula. But that's always where I kind of start my compass, so to speak. Should I be well, locking in? Not necessarily right now. I think averaging into okay. both the stock and the bond market. If if you're in it, you're 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 in it. And you just have to take a look at your portfolio and make minor adjustments. If you've been sitting on cash, you're waiting to invest cash, picking a four to six month period where you're just going to average in and not be emotional about it, that's what makes sense. And that's what works over time. But most of the time, you're going to look back at a negative time in the market or or even bond market and say, gosh, I wish I just would have gone all in. But that, that's scarier, right? A lot of people can't just go all in. So averaging in just makes you feel a little bit better, if that makes sense. Um, uh, and you know, what we will go through a situation where rates will rise a little bit and then the economy will slow down and then the federal reverse course. And, and then we're off to the growth phase again, you know, it's kind of these seven to 10 year rotations. Are you seeing any green shoots or anything positive in the economy right now? Because a lot of the focus in 2022 has been about inflation and higher interest rates, but not about a lot of the other negative things that are out there. We're not really talking about those. And we're also not talking about the positives. We got about 30 seconds to chat about this. Well, it's, it's, it's just kind of an adjustment. I think the positives are the demand out there is still very, very high. Um, but it, it, it's a supply chain issue. And so how long will the demand stay high as we deal with the supply chain issues and, and, and what's going to give first? Um, the underlying economy is very, very healthy. Just, mm-hmm. It's just the supply chain. We got to get it back online. We got to deglobalize and bring stuff back into the U.S. Come up in the next segment, we're going to talk about examples of different allocation over time. You can find Chad Burton at all podcasts under New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton. I'm Rob Black. Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is the Rob Black Show. Joining me now, CFP and Regional Director for EP Wealth, my former business co-founder at New Focus Financial. 
He's got a wonderful podcast, as the killers would say, wonderful, wonderful. You can find it, New Focus on Wealth with Chad Burton at the place where you find your podcast. I asked Chad earlier in the show, what podcast are you listening to these days? And he came back with Chad. Uh, well, probably Ben Greenfield is my favorite. So I, I listen to, to what's called biohacking or health and fitness podcasts on my downtime because I listen to financial and read financial information all day long. But <clears throat> what, the, you know, what I've learned with retirement, especially getting into this business at the age of 19, you know, almost 29 years ago, and dealing with people in their 70s and 80s, um, health is so important because I would see these couples that would talk about how their, their entire week would be spent with each of them going to multiple doctor's appointments. Like, it's like how they'll plan their entire week with, I got to go to this doctor and then this yeah. doctor and this doctor, and they're each driving each other around to these different medical events. And, um, you know, then having kids and I've got older kids and I've got a younger child knowing when it, when they like to do things like travel with you versus nope, they're in college and they want to do spring break with their friends. Yeah. I just, it's changed my thoughts of retirement. It's made health and fitness way more important. I even talked to clients about it. And it's made me kind of say, you know what? I, I love this business. I don't mind working into my seventies and I want to make sure that I enjoy the things that I love to do now, you know, hella skiing and wake surfing and, you know, all the stuff that's hard on your body now while I'm, you know, very, very healthy. And I've also seen that when people do either work or they volunteer a lot late in life, they remain healthier, happier, and sharper. And um, so does that make sense? It's like oh, concentrate sure. on health. Let me give you two real life it. examples. My mom died with millions of dollars, but last 10 years of her life, she was a shut in. She watched TV and she slowly died. Uh, she didn't socialize one bit. My in-laws, they're 85 years old and they're healthy as oxes and they're probably going to die with no money, which right. is fine. But at least the grandchildren get to see the grandparents. So I think was, that's a real life example of why you want to stay healthy. Um, spend your wealth, uh, enjoy life and and create memories with your children, like you like to say. Right. And some of the most miserable retirees that I see are the ones that are working 60, 70 hours a week and their their career is their life. Okay. And then they hit whatever, you know, a portfolio milestone or age that they say, okay, now I'm going to retire. And a lot of times it's the, the other spouse driving that decision. I, you know, hey, I want you home with me. You know, this is, you're, you're working too much at this age. And they don't practice retirement. They haven't started to work on their health. And what happens is, is if you don't have those life plans that get you out of bed, and the first thing you do is, you know, get out of bed, exercise right away. Um, you know, have a have a a daily plan for your life because if you don't, what'll happen is you go from from being wanted and needed at work to all of a sudden you're you're a little bit lost. Um, you go from feeding your 401k every two weeks and watching everything grow to focusing on your portfolio, which has got to last the next 35 years, your risk tolerance drops in the toilet. Then you start reading financial news and listening to, you know, Jim Cramer on TV and you, you start freaking out about your portfolio and, and not concentrating on the things that you're supposed to in life. And, and you're just miserable. And so prior to retirement with 10 years, you'd start focusing on your health. And start focusing on on thinking about what you want retirement to be like, realizing that 
the happiest people I know in retirement are the ones that say, I'm so busy now. I don't know how I had time to work. So you just brought up Jim Cramer and we'll get back to investing in down markets or retirement down markets, probably in the next segment, but you just brought up Jim Cramer and he's easy one to beat up on. Um, he's a cheerleader. He's the church of what's working now. When things go bad, he's still the church of what's working now. Um, but what do you think about some of the legendary investors like Stanley Drunkenmiller warning there's a high probability the stock market will be flat for decades? And then on the other hand, you get Warren Buffett, who's like the best opportunities are in down markets. It's like, shut yeah. up. I need to hear only one of these two people. I know. Well, you got to remember that everything on the internet is is a is clickbait, right? right. So they're going to always enough. do either the 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 gloomiest predictions or the you know it's basically playing on fear and greed right there's nothing in the middle that's why you have cnn and you have fox news right there's nothing in the middle these days and that even is uh financial news it seems um yeah i look at the numbers i think probably i think one of the smartest guys on wall street is scott minard with guggenheim um, Gunlock is pretty smart too, but I think it's, it's kind of comes from the sell side when you want to freak everybody out about the stock market, you know, they're obviously going to want to go buy more bonds. Um, so you have to always, where are these predictions coming from? What's their angle? Um, if they're a bond manager and they're trying to freak people out on the stock markets, cause they want you to sell stocks and buy bonds. And the, the right answer is never going all in or all out. Never met anybody that does that successfully over time. I've met people that got out before a bigger decline and then they stayed out. I, I just met somebody with millions of dollars in a portfolio that's been out of the market for five years and has missed out on a huge run. And part of it was because they they were working with a, a previous friend advisor and they were both very negative on the US in terms of the direction where society is going, right? And if I... It, you got to remember, I, I started working with people that were lived through the depression, Rob. <laughs> and so I've heard that so many times of every single generation throughout my career, they all say that. And you can be annoyed with who's president and what's going on socially in the world and, and the unrest, um, you know, the, the riots in Portland, Oregon, for example, you have to be able to separate what's going on politically with investing. It's two different things because You've got your, you know, your president and your Congress over here, and what's going on with society? Is it leaning left? Is it leaning right? But these companies are run by CEOs, and CEOs find a way to make money in good economies, bad economies, different political environments, different social environments, and there's always opportunities. So you can have these conversations about what's going on in the world and in society, and be either positive or negative about it. But investing is a different, it's a totally different conversation. You have to keep an eye on revenues and, and costs and profitability. And that's what tells the story with investing. Um, so you have to separate the two and it's, it's hard to do, but whether it's Russia, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Afghanistan, uh, it, it's, it's the same, you know, over the, just started the 29th year in the business, it's the same play with different actors every couple of years. It, it is like the storyline doesn't change. It's just different actors. One of the people that I really respect, I'll give you one if you give me one, is a guy named Luke Mann. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a great CEO. And uh, he said something recently. He goes, removing inflation from the system takes pain. It doesn't take the Federal Reserve. It takes pain. And I like finding some gurus, but again, I don't trust them all. Any ones that you have, we got about 30 seconds left. I, I really, I mean... 
I, I read a lot of them, but mm-hmm. the ones that'll come up with these major bold predictions of, you know, the, the market's going to go down by 20% or it's flat for fun. They, they're always wrong. Okay. Um, so I, I just really look at the, the numbers, you know, our revenues growing and our costs under control. Um, what's the price to earnings ratio versus interest rates of the S and P 500. And, mm-hmm. and where are we at? Are we, is it cheap? Is it expensive? Is it yep. fairly valued? It's CFP Regional Director for EP Wealth, Chad Burton. You can find him online at chadburton.com. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show. So I do two hours of content minimum a day between radio, television, podcasts, Facebook, and everything else. Uh, It takes me a lot of time to prepare content. So hopefully you're getting the best of my efforts. One of the areas that sometimes makes me go, that's damn interesting. And I would have wanted to know that when I was 21 years old. I guess part of what I'm doing on the show is is finding things and showing you things from the investment world from 25 plus years of doing this and being successful and creating a nice lifestyle for myself and my family um, are, are things that I wish we would have been shot, taught, shot, lot, learned. Good. Um. Other than John Quincy Adams. How about this one? You know, John Deere, they make those big tractors. Every little kid loves a tractor. Every little kid loves a train. Every little kid loves a truck, I think. Me too. I have a dream of driving a bulldozer. Like, that would be on my bucket list. I know you're saying a bucket list? Like, aren't you supposed to be like, I want to go to the place where I was born and... Ride a hot air balloon. No, I have nothing like that. I've traveled as much as I want to travel. I, I will still travel for sure. But I was lucky. I was raised in a military family, so I, I knocked a lot of that out. And then in my college years, I traveled a lot. So John Deere is on my bucket list in a funny way. But So I started looking at their business model. They want 10% of their revenue in the future to come from software fees. We're going to need farms. Until the day we die, we're going to need tractors and hoes in a different way from than from you know when we're talking about match.com and tender. We're going to need tractors and hoes, and we're going to need bulldozers and those big, powerful machines, cranes. How many companies do you think can do that? Not many. I own shares of Caterpillar for the long term because I think we're going to need farming equipment, manufacturing equipment for a long time. These are machines that have an amazing work ethic. Deere has spent hundreds of millions developing the next generation farm equipment outfitted for smart technology. As the planet, I guess, becomes drier or as the planet becomes more susceptible to uh, global warming, we can't afford to lose the Midwest of the United States. We may not you know, love to travel there. We may not have cities that we're like, we're going to adorn it with a, a Disneyland. It's never going to be the apple of our eye, but we need that part of the country to make food. So John Deere just did a $305 million acquisition back in 2017 of Blue River Technologies, whose artificial intelligence technology allows automated sprayers to differentiate crops from weeds. Wait, wait, wait. That's cool. Now, what if, they, what if we hack these and they, they think weeds, crops are weeds and they spray them with pesticide? Uh-oh. Deer tacked on another $250 million purchase of Bear Flack Robotics, a company that makes software to give old tractors autonomous capability. 
Now we're talking. Deere announced a fully autonomous tractor and crop sprayer, both of which are being rolled out on a limited basis this year. If you go to a farm today, Farmer John's not the same Farmer John that you thought growing up. And I went, went to a farm when I was in high school. And if you want to become vegan, go to a farm and see farm animals and how they're treated and the lifestyle that way they live. And then it's suddenly over. So deer announced a fully autonomous tractor and crop sprayer. One that can differentiate weeds from crops. One that can do all the work so that you don't have to hire illegal immigrants to do the work for you at a very low cost. One that you don't have to pay union fees to or worry if they get sick in the fields. Dear executives told the Wall Street Journal, the company wants 1.5 million machines connected to the cloud called, sweetly enough, John Deere Operations Center. I know you're saying that's not sweet. It's kind of a boring name, in fact, Rob. Why are you calling it sweet? Because that's funny. You'd expect to be called Crop Skynet 2023. When they hook it up to the cloud, John Deere's going to be able to run a lot of artificial intelligence on crops and weeds and figuring out herbicides that are appropriate. Dear executive sold the Wall Street Journal, the company wants 1.5 million machines collect, uh, connected to the cloud. That's not a Amazon Web Services kind of number, but it's a nice number for a farmer. Their CEO talked to the Wall Street Journal, 10% of the company's annual revenue will come from software fees by 2030. Software is way more profitable than hardware. Way more. Once Microsoft came up with Windows... They have this source code and they're like, you know what? We can put this on a CD. We can put this on a floppy drive. We can pre-install our machines and charge $200 every time. And they run that code. Do they have to reinvent it? Nope. They have to maintain it for sure. But there's nothing physical about it. It's software. It's cheap to replicate, duplicate. Times 10, times 20, times 40. Software is more profitable than hardware. Equipment will eventually remain the bulk of Deere's business, but there's going to be this big push into software. Is there risk because of that? Hell, yes, there's risk because of that. But the average gross margin of farming software is 85% versus 25% on equipment sales. So when they sell you a tractor or a hoe, and it costs $35,000, $40,000, $100,000, the margins on that hardware is only 25%. Margin on software, 85%. Do I think we're going to live in a world with robotics and artificial intelligence coming to not all farms, but to many? I do. Now, some farmers aren't sold because my daddy's daddy's daddy, he used to work the fields here. They see software subscriptions eroding their fiscal independence. They see that they won't be able to be like, say, I just bought a tractor. I'm a good. I'll take care of it from here, John Deere. You go on. Thank you for your equipment. President Biden signed an executive order directing the FTC to curb repair restrictions on farm equipment last year. Again, you start thinking about it. If you get a Maserati, you're not taking your Maserati to get repaired at the uh, you know, local uh, oil change, Jiffy Lube. And you got to get gouged in the process. 
one of the things I like about Toyota vehicles is there's so many of them out there. You don't get gouged in the, the repair parts. And they're so easy to fix that most mechanics can do it. I know you're saying you've thought this through. I have. One minute. So President Biden signed an executive order directing the FTC to curb repair restrictions by farm equipment manufacturers. It's unclear to what extent they will be able to tinker with embedded software. If farmers gain assurances there, they'll feel a lot more like the jolly rancher versus the upset angry rancher. And again, have we seen that like with Apple where Apple wants to repair the equipment themselves. And then the government puts pressure on them. No, no, no. You need to open it up. Yeah. I do think John Deere is very interesting. I own shares of Caterpillar for the whole segment. I just talked about, we need food. That's not going to go away. We need farming equipment. That's not going to go away. They're embracing technology. That's not going to go away. Find me online at robblackshow.com. It's robblackshow.com. I'm Rob Black. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.